One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Today, believe it or not, marks Prime Minister's one-year anniversary in 10 Downing Street. But after by-election defeats and a huge polling deficit and a long list of Tory MPs quitting at the next election, uh, it is fair to say it hasn't been exactly a walk in the park. Now the Prime Minister is under pressure from some backbenchers to cut taxes. But will he be allowed to do so? Um, and what will Mr Hunt, the Chancellor, have to say about it? I'm delighted to be joined now by Paul Scully, Minister for London, uh, live now down in College Green. I'm glad the rain stopped, Paul. Nice to see you. Um, what is going on uh, inside that building behind you? Because um, it was a pretty awful week last week for Rishi Sunak and a pretty bad week for the Tory party in general. Um, will there be any chance of the taxes being cut? What do you see? Well, look, we've got a difficult situation, economic situation that's ongoing. It's improving. The political situation is stabilising under Rishi as well. But there are loads and loads of challenges ahead. He's still uh, getting, you know, going through his programme, the five pledges, halving inflation, reducing the debt, growing the economy, stopping the boats and reducing the backlog in the NHS. And that's all uh, progressing along. Difficult things to do. But we'll see what happens in the autumn statement. I can't preempt that. But clearly, the by-elections were also difficult. You know, you saw people, Conservatives, staying at home. We've got to do what we can to motivate them over this, uh, these coming few months, this coming year, to make sure they come out, keep Keir Starmer and the people behind him, like Jeremy Corbyn and other Labour MPs, out of power and the Conservatives in to continue that journey. Do you think the problem's going to be, though, motivating them to get out and vote, as you say? Because, you know, Conservatives historically don't like to vote for other parties. They either vote Conservative or they don't. Um, it's going to be a struggle, isn't it? Because you're going to have to ideally pinpoint precisely what people want. Um, I mean, I can probably tell you what some of the things uh, will be that they want. Um, there's a move towards moving people out of these luxury hotels, the migrants' um, crisis is, is going on. But if that doesn't really... I mean, if that all it does is move them into slightly cheaper hotels in other parts of town rather than in the country, that might actually backfire anyway. Yeah, look, that's the case, but that's not what's happening. You know, the uh, hotels are costing us something like six million quid a day. We've got to get rid of that situa situation to solve the problem a different way. We've seen crossings down 20% this year yeah. compared to last year. We've seen the uh, movement of Albanians to this country down 90% since the deal that we struck with the Albanian government. So it is a really difficult problem to solve, stopping the boats, but we've got to do it. We are doing it, uh, but it's going to take that little bit of time to work through. And that's what we've got. Before we can start demonstrating what we want to promise people for the next five years, we've actually got to promise, uh, show that we can deliver on these five pledges first. Yeah. But let's have a look at those five pledges because we've got hospital waiting lists still not particularly down, still more or less going in the wrong direction. Um, I'm not absolutely sure what's going on with the doctor's strikes. I, th I think they're still going on. I think they'll probably have another one or two soon. Um, next time you have a conference, no doubt, they'll probably decide to go out on strike again. Um, stop the boats. I mean, pretty much you've admitted you haven't stopped the boats. Um, inflation's coming down. Not really much to do with Rishi Sunak's policies, more to do with just overall kind of, you know, uh, economic conditions. Um, you know, the five pledges, he said he should be judged by uh, the end of the year. So you've got a lot of making up to do between now and December. 
Well, there's lots to happen, but honestly, you can't pick and choose what's happening, though, uh, there, Mike, because the inflation figures, you know, they're always uh, looking as though they're coming down, but we've seen the, the fluctuations over the last year, and part of that is because of the strikes themselves and the wage demands. So what the government has done is it's really uh, pushed hard to make sure that we're paying people a fair wage, but we're doing it in a way that isn't inflationary in itself, isn't causing that extra demand uh, in itself so that we can keep the trajectory of inflation coming down difficult when it's not like the kind of inflation that we had in the 80s, but we, which was through an overheating economy. It's inflation caused by a tight labour market and, of course, the war in Ukraine, which is fueling food, food prices and energy prices. Mm. I mean, the other big story, of course, of the last 18 days, as we've just been told by some of those terrible stories that the families have just been telling uh, at a press conference in London, uh, people whose elderly mothers have been kidnapped by Hamas, you know, the war in the Middle East is clearly going to have an impact on everything over the next several weeks and months and possibly even over the next year. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you as Minister for London, you know, we've had the Metropolitan Police uh, Chief, uh, Sir Mark Rowley, saying that, you know, jihad doesn't necessarily mean a holy war. You know, we've hired some specialists to tell you the difference between an ISIS flag uh, and, and a flag of faith in Islam. We've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of people potentially marching around London over the next few weeks who want to have free Palestine, Jewish people saying that they're in fear uh, for their actual existence in, in England. And you've got even today the front page of The uh, Sun uh, with uh, Dame Margaret Lipton, Maureen Lipton uh, saying that she was offered basically um, uh, protection by ITV because of all the anti-Semitism. I mean, it's a massive problem for London, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. To finish your first point with this context, clearly the global instability, including now the, uh, the conflict in Israel and, and, and Gaza, really does fuel inflation. It fuels movement of people as well, back to the, the boat situation. But what we've seen in London is uh, a, a, an incredibly complex situation, but a situation that needs to be policed incredibly robustly. You talked about that uh, call for jihad. And, you know, we're not talking about a religious dissertation here. We are talking about uh, Hezbollah Tahrir, uh, an organisation where, where many people, including people that were speaking yesterday, have supported the acts, the terrorist acts of Hamas. They've called for the destruction of Israel. I think we clearly know what jihad meant mm. in that context. What I've been asking people to do in London, from both sides of the argument, is to, for goodness sake, be temperate with your words. Support the, uh, the, the, the people in Palestine to be able to live a peaceful and equitable life. Support Israel's uh, ability to self-determine their future, to better defend themselves. But don't go overboard using the words of terrorists uh, because you don't really fully understand what is inevitably a complex situation. Otherwise, you're just inflaming yeah. further and further, more and more tension here on the streets of London. But doesn't also the presence of all of those people marching in London increased tensions just by their very existence. I mean, the police have admitted, basically, uh, that if they were doing it outside a synagogue, they wouldn't let them. But they can apparently do it down Piccadilly. Well, look, I mean, I think the right to protest has been, uh, uh, has been enshrined in UK law for, you know, for, for a long, long time. So I think if people want to come out in the streets, that's up to them, as long as they're doing it with the police, clearly. It has to be consistent, though, because there was obviously a, a, a vigil in Golders Green in North London with the Jewish community wanting to come out uh, uh, to, uh, to remember those people that have been kidnapped in Israel and to, and to uh, commemorate those awful attacks that we've seen some of the detail coming out um, over the last 24 hours that happened a couple of weeks ago. We saw the people in Trafalgar Square who, who held a vigil, were able to hold a vigil, actually penned behind barricades it purportedly to protect them. But uh, can you imagine if you're a, a member of the Jewish community that's being barricaded in to mm. be able to uh, remember your loved ones when you see 100,000 people coming down the streets of Whitehall? It's very inconsistent. And I think that's... We've got to keep the safety on the streets of London, so policing is very complicated and it's an operational matter for the police, but we've got to have that consistency. Yeah, I mean, absolutely right, because they've said they're going to continue with these marches, they're going to continue having them every weekend, but you've got memorials coming up, you've got Armistice Day coming up, you've got, um, you know, Poppy Day coming up, you've got the Cenotaph um, Sunday as well for Remembrance Sunday. I mean, the two things can't coexist, surely? 
Well, you've got to work these things through. That's what I mean about the operization, the operational nature that the police have to lead on. But look, I say to people coming out on the streets, first of all, you know, yes, have a, uh, you know, make sure that you're campaigning for a just reason, but also use the words. It's a complicated situation. Don't come out because you're jumping on a bandwagon. Where were, uh, you know, people calling out uh, the terrorist actions of Hamas and, uh, you know, killing children indiscriminately, literally, by their own hand. Mm. Uh, where have these people been for the last few years? It needs a, a consistency, it needs a degree of thought, rather than just different groups, disparate groups, coming in and agitating within um, people who, as I say, are coming out into the streets not really understanding the complexity of the situation in the Middle East. No, that exactly. then just goes to fuel that geopolitical situation in the Middle East, as well as inflaming tension on the streets of London. Yeah, let me just take you back to Hizbut Tahrir, because you referred to them as terrorists. Um, they've been banned in Bangladesh, in China, in Germany, in Russia, in Turkey, in Indonesia, uh, and all other Arab countries apart from Lebanon, Yemen and the UAE. Um, why are they not prescribed terrorist organisation in this country? Well, I know Tony Blair was looking at this, David Cameron was looking at this, and, uh, you know, I think that's something we, we, we'll always keep under review. It's not my... That's a long uh, time I, You know, I can't give you the depth of understanding. Yeah, no, it is, but I can't give you the depth of understanding as to, uh, uh, to give you a, a good explanation of why uh, that is not the case now. I think you need to speak to uh, one of our security ministers, a home office minister, yeah. uh, to look at that. But it is something, clearly, we need to look at what people are saying, how people are inflaming tension, and then act accordingly. Right. Well, they'll say, presumably, well, the police say what we said was OK, so what, what do you mean? What do you mean we have to be shut down? It, similarly, they've got an incredible story at the weekend in the Sunday Times revealing that one of Hamas's leaders uh, has been living in Collindale, a part of North London, heavily populated by a Jewish um, minority um, in Barnet, in the borough of Barnet, bought a council house, got a discount from the council. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, well, if you're, if you're a member of a terrorist organisation, clearly that needs to be investigated, and, that, and, and I'm sure that will be the, the case that the uh, security services will be looking at that. Yeah, well, let's hope so. Uh, and let's hope he's not hanging around for too much longer. Paul, very good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Paul Scully there, Minister for London, uh, talking to us live from College Green uh, down in Westminster, where, to be honest, um, you know, you'd have to wonder sometimes what on earth is going through people's minds. You know, you've got pro-Palestinian... Um, March is going on. Uh, you've got Jewish groups being told that they shouldn't have um, vigils. You've got people being told in the Jewish community that they might be in danger, so they shouldn't have a particular vigil. And at the same time, you've got a former Hamas leader, uh, who's still obviously associated with Hamas, living in the part of North London, which is heavily populated by Jewish people. Uh, and you've now got a prescribed illegal organisation operating in Britain, where it's not illegal, despite the fact that it's illegal in most other countries issuing orders for jihad, which the police in this country say is OK, it's all right. They don't really mean it. They don't really mean a holy war. No, they don't mean that at all. For God's sake. Coming up after the break, we promise to hear from you. We will get some of you on. But also, we're going to hear from Top Gear legend Steve Berry. He's going to be with us to talk about you les protesters because they drove a tank through London yesterday. And guess what? They didn't get a fine because tanks are compliant. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The BBC has launched what it's calling an urgent investigation into six journalists and a freelancer working for its Arabic language service over accusations they had shown anti-Israel bias in their coverage and expressed support on social media for Hamas. We've also, of course, seen uh, the BBC's ongoing impartiality struggle um, going on pretty much ever since the start of this and probably since before the dreadful events of October the 7th. We're going to talk now uh, to a columnist for The Spectator, Mary Dijewski, who's just written a piece about all of this. Good afternoon, Mary. Good to see you. Good afternoon. Nice to see you too. It's strange, isn't it, that we find ourselves talking so much about the BBC and how they cover uh, various events around the world. This particular situation between Hamas and Israel and, and the dreadful events of October the 7th seems to have sort of polarised it even more because... They've had, we've seen the BBC having to apologise for claiming that uh, that strike on a hospital in Gaza was an Israeli airstrike because it couldn't have been anything else. It turns out even Rishi Sunak has now said no, that it absolutely wasn't, came from inside of Gaza itself. Uh, we've seen these BBC Arabic presenters and journalists suspended because some of them actually were liking tweets which, which in fact uh, glorified the Hamas attack on October the 7th. And just the general tenant 
of the way that interviews are conducted. We saw former Israeli Prime Minister having a go uh, on Sunday at Victoria Derbyshire on the Laura Kunzberg show. I mean, there's a pattern here which can't be denied, isn't there? Well, I think it's, you know, I have a certain degree of loyalty to the BBC because I began my journalistic career there um, with the World Service. Yeah. But I do think there is a, there's a real problem because the BBC is not just domestic broadcaster. It broadcasts all over the world. Um, and I think, um, as I said in the article that you were referring to, I think maybe there is um, a bigger question about what it broadcasts in non-English languages. Um, and this is where the BBC Arabic, um, which is what the investigation is being conducted into now, um, comes in. You know, I don't know, and I, I, I think it, you know, it should be left to the BBC to investigate what was actually said um, and broadcast and what um, sort of loyalties the um, BBC Arabic um, reporters and programme makers were, um, were showing. Um, but I think potentially there is a problem there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we're reading uh, about how a BBC team which was later um, identified as being from BBC Arabic, uh, was stopped and searched by police in Tel Aviv. You know, um, these things are always very difficult. I mean, you've been in war zones, I've been in war zones. You have to be very, very level-headed when you're in those places. But you also have to understand, you know, what the dangers are. One of the things that John Simpson said, you know, the veteran news reporter, when he was defending uh, the BBC's... Um, sort of steadfast refusal, really, to call Hamas a terrorist organisation. Yeah. He was saying one of the reasons for that is that they have to safeguard um, their own people who might be operating in areas where Hamas are. Well, I get that, but, I mean, everybody knows that that's the case. And considering that every other um, sort of news organisation in the world would describe Hamas as a terrorist group because of what they did on October the 7th alone, that's not really a defence, is it? Well... <laughs> I have to say, I have some sympathy for John Simpson's view here. I think that terrorist is, I mean, to me, terrorist is actually a narrower word um, than um, all those people demanding that the BBC describe Hamas as a, ter a terrorist organisation. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, terrorist almost, you have the view that it's not that many people operating in the name of a bigger cause. But mm. what happened with the... Um, with the Hamas, I would call them maybe fighters um, on the 7th of October. Um, that seemed to me a much bigger operation than something that would be designated yeah. um, terrorist. But except if you call them fighters, it sounds like they're fighting in a war which has got a fight to fight going on, which is not what they did. What they did was they went and massacred innocent civilians. They went and massacred people in their homes. Uh, they did atrocious things to, to the, those people. We've seen a video now from inside of Israel, um, unglorified, um, if you like, and certainly, you know, unauthenticated, in which a, a captured Hamas terrorist talks of being told, desecrate the bodies, you know, do horrible things to them. You know, yeah. that, they weren't fighters. I mean, fighters sounds to me a bit more noble than what Hamas did. No, but I have you know I have some sympathy with the, with the BBC withholding, as it were, the word terrorist from either side. I mean, I'm just not sure that that's that that's the right word. Um, but it also you know, there is a there's such a gigantic problem in wars, um, and that's really what we're looking at here um, about taking sides, yeah. and you can condemn atrocities on both sides. Um, and, you know, I look at how the war in Ukraine has been reported, and yes, you can say, well, right is on one side, Ukraine was, Ukraine was invaded, and the invader was Russia, and therefore we are all on the same side. But is that, is that a... Is that the best way to report things? You know, in the Cold War, you know, I, I referred to this in the article too. In the Cold War, it was really quite easy because we were all on the same side. Um, and there was, as it were, a the, 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 there was a subtext. The, 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 there was a propaganda line that we were on the right side and we were fighting um, communism and it was the time of the Cold War. I think we're, 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 in, different, we're, we're in different conditions now. Um, and if you have the BBC 
especially in a foreign language, appearing to take one side or the other. I think I, I think there is a problem for that because the BBC's brand is impartiality. Yes. But apparently the BBC's brand of impartiality has been already quite badly tarnished because if you listened, as I say, to... And I think, in fact, I think we've got the clip. Let's have a look at it. Uh, Naftali Bennett, the former Israeli Prime Minister, talking to Victoria Derbyshire. He was very clear what he thought of the BBC. Let's have a look. And I understand that BBC has taken a side of, uh, uh, on the Gazan side because all your questions are only about the Gazan civilians. That's not you true. You haven't asked one that's question. That's not you haven't true. asked one question I, I began about by those children. That, from the very beginning of this interview, from you the very just are asking me about them. Mr. But Bennett, it seems that, that is you care little about our side. Oh, it is. Mr. What Bennett, I began, I, began, I began by talking about the hostages. And what I'm asking you about now is... No, I'm not talking is, about the hostages. I'm talking about the babies that were murdered. And you keep on... Caring only about one side, but that is the BBC way. But uh, let me let me tell you something: we're here protecting you. You're, we don't need your protection. I mean, pretty damning words there from a former prime minister, I and mean, he's not an insignificant figure. And I think I take your point that you know the BBC should strive to be impartial. But it would appear that around the world they're not seen as impartial; they're seen as actually partial um, in a different direction, and very much so from the point of view of what's come out of the BBC and the way that BBC Arabic has behaved, it would appear that they would be on the side of the Palestinians, not Hamas, but of the Palestinians, as opposed to the side of Israel. That's how it comes across. And I think that's very damaging to the BBC. No, I agree, absolutely. Um, and I think that the BBC has to be very, very careful of um, its impartiality. And I think it's unfortunate that in that particular interview that you've just shown um, a section of, um, the, the the BBC, I mean, Victoria Derbyshire was very much thrown back on the defensive. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's not a good position for the BBC to be in either. Mm. Um, but my, you know, my particular concern has been about um, editorial control and direct of what's broadcast in the name of the BBC in foreign languages. Mm. I think if they're broadcasting in English, then it's, you know, it's much easier around the world, um, maybe to, 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 to keep a bit of distance, but also for the editors to know what's going out in their name. Once you start broadcasting foreign languages, and you know the BBC has Arabic television, I would say there's maybe um, a particular problem with television as opposed to radio. Um, but actually keeping tabs on what people are saying and doing with the BBC brand, as it were, yeah. all over all over it. Yeah. I think that is that's something that really has to be looked at more carefully. Yeah. Oh, I think like many things in the BBC, because it's such a large. Uh, and difficult organisation to manage, I think they can't keep their eyes on everything. And I'm sure that BBC executives in London were horrified when they saw that members of their teams in BBC Arabic were actually liking tweets which appeared to be welcoming the Hamas invasion um, of, uh, of Western Israel, you know, and the massacre that took place. Similarly, I mean, I've known, as I'm sure you have, people that worked in the World Service. You know, over the years, I was associated with... Um, media in this country, that, which was aimed at the Asian population. Um, and I knew quite a lot of the people that worked in the, uh, the Urdu service at the World Service at Bush House. And it was very tribal, you know, and an awful lot of the people, because the BBC sort of managers didn't really have a clue, they'd sort of give carte blanche almost to certain individuals to go and do broadcasting in Urdu uh, to Pakistan uh, or uh, in Hindi to some of the BBC outlets in India. And incredible kind of, you know, um, partnerships were forged, unbeknownst, as far as I know, to the BBC, mm. where only certain kind of representations were made in those broadcasts. And I'm not accusing the BBC of negligence here, but, you know, I think they just didn't have their eye on the ball. They weren't sure what was going on. Mm. But you see, it's extraordinarily difficult to, get to, to keep your eye on the ball all the time. And I just wonder whether, I mean, the, the, the BBC is in, a, in quite a sort of um, ambiguous position in a lot of ways, because yeah. it claims to be, you know, at one remove, because of the licence fee, it claims to be at one remove, at least, um, from the government. Um, but when it broadcasts abroad, it's seen as an arm of the government, like it or not. Mm. Um, and when you look at um, other foreign broadcasters, for instance, France 24 or Deutsche Welle or Germany, 
um, they broadcast in several foreign languages, including in, uh, on television. Um, they broadcast in Arabic um, as well as um, French or German, their own language, and in English. Um, and they are absolutely upfront about how they're funded and the fact that um, the funding comes uh, from Deutsche Welle, for, for Deutsche Welle from the state and for France 24, at least par partly from the state. Um, and the BBC keeps this, it, it takes a rather superior attitude to this and says we're, we're independent of the state. Mm. I think in broadcasting abroad, um, even though the funding model has changed over the years, um, really, maybe the, the, the BBC should say um, and be funded in a way that makes it clear that it actually is an arm of the state when it broadcasts abroad. Right. Because, you know, there are... Um no doubt conversations that are had between top brass at the BBC and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, because that would go without saying. The World Service is one of the things, I suppose, that's been the least changed in the last, say, five years, given the way that conversations are going on about the BBC licence fee and whether it should be changed, whether mm -hmm. the model should change. You know, whereas the World Service is still um, very much seen, as far as I know, uh, as a bit of an arm of the, of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. No, absolutely. I mean, this is despite the fact that um, quite a lot of the funding for the World Service was actually transferred to the licence fee, I think about, about 10 years ago. And in some ways, I thought that was quite a good thing because it meant that um, the BBC could actually deny that it was, it, it, it was, it, it was an arm of government. Yeah. But since then, there have been sort of um, discretionary grants and extra payments for extra services, including, for instance, like broadcasting in Ukraine. Ukrainian, obviously, um, after 2014 and the annexation of Crimea. Um, so the, 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 the other thing is that the, the, the model, I think, which is not sometimes appreciated, um, the model for BBC World, um, the television uh, service, that is funded largely from advertising, whereas the foreign language radio services are currently funded partly out of the license fee um, and partly out of these discretionary grants from the Foreign Office. Um, and that puts, you know, BBC World, um, the television service in English, is therefore in, in, in a different situation. Um, editorially from, from from the World Service Radio or from the home services. Yeah. But it's possible, isn't it, though, Mary, in the end, to be able to make a judgment about an act. So, for example, if you didn't want to call Hamas terrorists, you could still see what they had done was terrorist activity, and in that situation, you call them terrorists, in the same way that you don't have to be on the side of Ukraine to see that an invasion by Russia into Ukraine uh, is, is wrong. And therefore, you can argue the toss about, you know, the history of the whole project and the history of the two countries and all of that. You know, but, you know, an incursion into a, into a foreign country, um, a foreign state, a sovereign state, um, is clearly not the best way to proceed. And so, therefore, you can still take the side of Ukraine initially and say that the, the Russians are the aggressors. No, absolutely. I mean, you 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 have to say that in 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 the light of the facts. Um, but what you know, what I worry about is what you've alluded to too, which is that you have different uh, different versions being put out for different audiences in different languages, um, and I think that, that that that's really not a good idea, and that it's perfectly possible in this day and age with all the um, facilities of digital, the internet, satellite television. Um, for some of those individual services actually to be spun off by the BBC, not to be broadcasting in the name of the BBC, but to be broadcasting um, in the name of whatever side or whatever cause they're representing. Um, and if they want to represent, you know, if you if, if you have, as it were, a, a group of, uh, of people who want to broadcast in, um, in, in, say, Arabic in particularly, in the name of the uh, 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 of the Palestinian cause, well, that's absolutely fine. But should that be funded by the BBC? I sort of think it shouldn't be. Absolutely, Mary. Good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed, Mary Dijewski there, uh, who's written a piece in the Spectator about the problem for the BBC, and no doubt the problem is BBC made and BBC manufactured and BBC solvable. It's quite simple. Hamas are terrorists. It's that easy. That's all you have to do. You don't have to write a memo. You don't have to send an email. Uh, you just have to know. 
this is what they do and this is what they are. It's that simple. Coming up, as the US prepares to airlift their citizens living in Israel, is Joe Biden's diplomacy up to scratch? That's coming up next. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Earlier in the show, we went to the Israeli embassy in London, where British-Israeli citizens whose families are being held hostage by Hamas spoke to the media. One of them told the harrowing tale of how Hamas uploaded the kidnapping to her mum's Facebook story. We heard from Eilat Svatitsky. I just, I just want my family and all the families, all the other um, hostages back home. Um, I know that a ground invasion can cause a lot of casualties. And I know that at some point they will have to go in because the Hamas must, we must put an end to the Hamas. I don't know exactly the right timing. Um, again, I'm not a politician. Um, it is scary to think that they will go inside while our families are there. It can escalate the situation. Um, so I'm, I'm afraid of it happening. Uh, but I have to trust that if, it, if that's what they decide to do, it will be in the best interest of our families and bringing them back. A really searing press conference held there by family members of those who had been kidnapped. We heard how one um, woman's mother uh, has been taken hostage, 75 years of age, taken hostage, is still in Hamas uh, territory being held in the Gaza Strip. Absolutely unbelievable stuff. Uh, her brother was killed. Uh, another brother uh, was taken hostage as well. I mean, it just is incredible what's been going on and what those families have had to put up with. President Biden uh, was quick to make the nearly 6,000-mile trip to Tel Aviv to show solidarity with Israel in the wake of the attacks. And while he was there, he did reiterate his support for Israel and its right to defend itself against terrorism. And he called for adherence to international humanitarian law. But questions have been raised about his diplomacy in the Middle East overall. He's believed to be asking now uh, for the Qataris to actually intervene uh, and to try and get rid uh, of some of the hostages, to try and get back, I should say, some of the hostages uh, who are American citizens from Hamas, from Gaza, and get them back to Israel and eventually uh, airlift them back to the United States of America. Uh, someone who's asked questions about Joe Biden's involvement uh, is Deputy Editor of The Spectator, um, uh, Freddie Gray. Hello, Freddie. How are you doing? Hello, Mike Graham. Nice to see you. Very nice to see you too. So, I mean, very difficult circumstances for all concerned. I mean, I don't know whether you were able to watch that um, terrible press conference that we just saw there with some of the Israeli um, family members here in London, um, British Jews who have been taken hostage uh, in Hamas territory in Gaza. Um, it must be a dreadful situation. We understand Joe Biden is trying to um, uh, extricate some American citizens, um, but it's a very tricky situation, isn't it? It is a very tricky situation. Uh, and I was speaking to some people with quite good inside knowledge of this from the American side and the Qatari side yesterday. Uh, and they were saying the reason for the ground invasion delay is this hostage situation and is the pressure um, that America's been putting on Israel uh, to a large extent to get those hostages freed. Um, because obviously the great leverage that Hamas has is these hostages. And if the ground invasion starts, then their lives will be at risk. And so uh, sort of taking that as a snapshot of what's going on, I think it's fair to say the Biden administration has so far responded quite uh, effectively and well to this crisis. Uh, Biden went out there. He is very old. He doesn't find it easy. Um, he got through his speech OK. He got through a day of meetings OK. Um, but you could see on the plane on the way back, uh, he was struggling. Um, and he he does struggle with these trips. He's, he's, he's 80. He's not quite up to it. Um, I think on uh, from the point of view of his administration, the, the concern is that their Middle East policy has been muddled up to uh, this point, up to October 7th and the attack. Mm. Uh, and I say that because um, they are, to a large extent, the Obama administration. And the Obama administration had their very cherished Iran deal, which was very controversial. Uh, I don't really make strong judgments on it one way or the other, but it was controversial. And Republicans hated it. Donald Trump hated it. And when Donald Trump came in, he tore up the Iran deal and then worked very closely with Israel to effectively alienate 
Iran mm. and make a lot of progress of what's called normalization. I'm sure you've been talking about it on the show a lot between uh, the Gulf states and particularly Saudi Arabia and Israel. Yeah. And when Biden came back in, a lot of the Obama people came back in and they didn't uh, they wanted to go back to the sort of Obama era of friendlier relations, not friendly necessarily, but warmer relations with Iran. Um, but they had to concede that the Saudi uh, normalization was very, very important and was working. And so what they did, sorry for the slightly long-winded explanation, sure. what they did was they tried to do both at the same time. They tried to warm up Iran. We saw that $6 billion, uh, in Iranian dollars deal uh, a few weeks before the attack, uh, while carrying on with Saudi-Israel normalization. The worry for a lot of analysts now is that they've got this wrong, both They've managed to both alienate uh, Iran even further, and uh, it looks like Israeli Gulf normalization is, or Israeli Saudi normalization is, is certainly on pause at, yeah. at best. Yeah, well, Saudi have been pretty hawkish, haven't they, um, against Israel since October the 7th and since um, that attack by Hamas. And a lot of people have said to me that they believe that one of the reasons why the attack was launched in the first place was in order to destabilise that normalisation uh, that you speak of with the UAE and with Saudi, which seems to have worked pretty well. So if that was their aim, aside from the ghastliness and the horror and the butchery that they took part in, you know, if that was their aim diplomatically, they've succeeded, haven't they? They have, they have. I mean, in the short term, they certainly have. Whether, whether uh, Israel and the Gulf states and Israel and Saudi, that's a particularly crucial one. Whether they will find uh, a way to get back to uh, normalization is the key point. I think one big problem for the Biden administration is its hypocrisy towards Saudi Arabia. Um, I mean, when Biden was a candidate, uh, he spent a lot of time denouncing um, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, because of the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, you remember yeah. that story, a yeah. uh, brutal story, which the, the Saudis were almost certainly behind. Um, I mean, it's pretty much accepted that they were now. Um, and so Biden uh, sort of virtue signaled a lot against the Saudis and said they called them a pariah state mm. and things like that. Um, and then once he was in power and the realities of, of, of being president of the United States kicked in and, you know, a global energy crisis partly caused by the war in Ukraine, he realised he couldn't really alienate uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So they went back, the US administration went back to the relationship which they normally have with Saudi Arabia, which is this very awkward dance of friendship where we sort of know, or the Americans sort of know that they can't stand anything that um, the, the Saudi kingdom stands for, uh, that it is the Wahhabist state, that it is repressive, even if it's liberalising liberalizing under MBS a little bit, but it's, it's a brutal place. Uh, and so there's a sort of uncomfortable friendship that's re-emerged under the Biden administration. Biden had to go out and see him. Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, had to make sort of polite remarks. They did a, they did a kind of spectacular reverse ferret mm. on Saudi Arabia. Right. Um, and now Saudi Arabia don't seem to be that keen on the Biden administration. They stood up uh, Anthony Blinken for a day, which is not how U.S. Secretaries of State are used to being treated. Right. Um, and then after they stood him up, MBS uh, lectured Blinken about um, Israeli aggression against Muslims. Uh, and then Blinken was similarly quite brusquely treated by al-Sisi, the Egyptian president. Um, and then the meeting between Biden when he came out and both MBS and al-Sisi, that was also cancelled. Yeah. Uh, so it looks like the um, Arab states are not that keen on American diplomacy at the moment. Um, and I think the Biden administration has to take some blame for that. Yeah, well, it certainly looks as if they don't respect Biden. They certainly don't respect the American administration because if they did, they wouldn't have stood them up and they wouldn't have treated them like that. So I think it's a bad day, uh, is it not, for, for, for American sort of global politics, if you like, because it shows that there's been a shift uh, in the power struggle, if you like, over in uh, that part of the world. The Saudis uh, and the Iranians and the Israelis and everybody else involved is paying less attention, it would seem. I mean, they can see, speak nice words in Israel and say that they're grateful for the support of the US uh, and for the UK. But it's looking more and more like those are the only two countries that aren't calling for some kind of ceasefire. Well, yes, I think, uh, I mean, you can't really blame Biden for this entirely. This is US policy in the Middle East has been muddled, incoherent, disastrous from uh, since the Iraq war and arguably before. Um, Biden has not actually made it any better, but I think we have to accept 
And Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, has said this on numerous occasions. The post-Cold War era is over. Uh, and the American period of unipolarity was always a bit of a fantasy. Uh, and it's certainly over now. And we are, as uh, Xi in China and Putin in Russia, they love to keep pointing this out, but it's true uh, to a large extent. We are now in a multipolar world where uh, there are different superpowers competing for influence, particularly in the Middle East. And you can see this with China sending their navy towards the Gulf now. Um, America is no longer the world's policeman, um, but it's in a sort of funny, particularly under Biden, it's in a sort of funny muddle role where it's slightly playing the world's policeman, but also accepting that it's no longer the world's policeman. Um, and so therefore its threats have arguably slightly less weight, even though, of course, the American military is still overwhelmingly powerful. Uh, it can't quite threaten, I mean, I'd say its threats against Iran are a little bit less uh, dangerous than they were um, even under Trump, because everybody thought Donald Trump was so insane uh, that they didn't know what he was going to do with Iran. Um, and so I think that Iran may be, obviously, threats against Iran have worked before, but around, you can see Iran already testing out, um, sending drones to US bases in the Middle East. Uh, they're testing out America's will, willingness to respond. Um, and I think the reason they're doing that is that they, they feel that the Biden administration's policy is, is a little bit of a muddle. Mm. Yeah, and we've seen as well Iran making little incursions, haven't we, into the Persian Gulf and, you know, stopping tankers and things like that and trying their luck with Saudi. I mean, but does this mean that for the moment the Saudi kind of feud with Iran isn't quite as hot as it was? It's hard to tell. I mean, I don't, you, with, the, with the Arab world, you always have to be, you know, there's so much going on all the time and so many different sorts of truths within every uh, government's position. Uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, Saudi-Iranian relations are not are not cosy, and they they won't be for any time soon. Uh, what Hamas is hoping to achieve, and what I think Iran is, and to a certain extent, um, other players are trying to achieve in the region, is to achieve a kind of global jihad. And you can see this uh, working domestically. You can see it with the uh, marches on British streets. Uh, there is a sense uh, among sort of Islam globally. Uh, that, uh, that they are called, they are religiously called um, to stand up for Palestine. Uh, and this has, in the past, um, been able to, this, this urgency, this call to action, has been able to bring together Sunni, so it's the Gulf states, uh, and uh, most of Islam, and Shia Muslims. That has worked to a certain extent in the past. But of course, Israel's approach has always been, and this is what they did quite successfully with Donald Trump, to pull the, the Gulf states, the Sunni states, away from Shia Iran. Uh, whether they are now suddenly united again, I think it's probably a bit hasty to say that. But certainly the, 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 the antipathy isn't as good for Israel as it used to be. No, I think that's right. So, I mean, the $64,000 question, which is probably worth a lot more than that, um, is what does happen now? Because it seems as though a ceasefire is not going to be accepted by Israel and, uh, under current circumstances. It doesn't seem as though uh, you can even see Hamas ever giving up on their wish to destroy Israel. I mean, I just don't see an easy solution to any of this. Well, I think there are a number of things that could happen. You know, the, the Qataris uh, are very... They get a lot of uh, flack, uh, and perhaps rightly so in some ways, but they are playing a very crucial role, as a back-channel role, as far as the hostages are concerned. Um, if the hostages are returned, uh, Israel has shown no indication that it's going to launch a ground invasion, but then what might happen there is that Hamas win the PR war. So they, they give back the hostages, and then Israel go, goes ahead and launches a a ground invasion uh, that could be very, very uh, uh, violent. Uh, it could, will cost a lot of Israeli lives. It will also cost a lot of Palestinian lives. And you will, this will add to this fuel of rage that you're, hit, you're seeing in a lot of the Arab world. Um, and that, in turn, could trigger, this is the crucial dynamic, Hezbollah, and do Hezbollah start uh, making serious attacks uh, on Israel? So far, they seem to have been just testing out Israel, to what extent Iran are encouraging to do that, to what extent Iran are actually holding them back or push or will push them further forward. These are all questions of debate in intelligence circles. But it's Hezbollah and whether the uh, Iran-backed Hezbollah um, really attack Israel, then we may find ourselves uh, with conflagration 
and uh, a greater war. And this is a very, very serious security risk for the whole world. Yeah, absolutely. Freddie, thanks for talking to us. Good uh, to speak to you. Freddie Gray there from Spectator uh, on what still appears to be a very intractable situation uh, in the Middle East and also terrible, terrible poor problems for uh, members of families of people who have been taken hostage by Hamas and who are still being held in Gaza. Children, elderly people, it's just dreadful. Uh, we've got much more to do. Uh, Julie Hartley-Brewer coming up, of course, at uh, one o'clock. Coming up next, though, uh, Britney Spears is telling the toxic truth in her tell-all memoir out today. We'll find out what was really going on in her controversial conservatorship after the break. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, now, it's time for this. The World of Woke. The World of Woke, something that we have named here at The Independent Republic because the world is woke and the world needs to be uh, in some way cleansed of some of the wokery that goes on. Now, if you thought uh, that you were safe from the uh, idealistic bankers of this country, I'm afraid you were wrong, because you remember when Nigel Farage discovered that he had been uh, basically debanked, a word that we didn't even know about until relatively recently, by Coots Bank, you know, the most inclusive bank in the world, uh, as long as you've got lots and lots of money um, and you probably went to private school. You can't really get an account at Coots, but if you're Nigel Farage, um, he pretty much stripped bare not only Coots, but also NatWest, the owners of Coots, and said that they had acted completely and utterly ridiculously outside of the law. Uh, they lost their chairwoman, they lost their CEO, uh, they lost a couple of other people along the way. But he's found out some even more terrible truths about the people that work at NatWest and how woke they are, because apparently they gloated while this was all going on that they had driven Nigel Farage out of the country. They called him dodgy. They called him sketchy. They said that he was probably an enemy of the state, practically. They more or less said that they wished that they had been the person that could have called up Nigel Farage to tell him that he was no longer a customer. And this shows you just how deep the wokery has got. Because who would have thought that people working for a private bank, usually used by members of the royal family and assorted peers and lords and ladies of the realm, would suddenly become the word of the people, you know, the proletariat. Well, I'm sorry to say uh, that Coots Bank is still deep in the doo-doo, uh, and this is not going to help them at all. These are all internal messages which Nigel Farage has fallen upon, uh, which are written down in black and white. So I fear there will be more cuts at the bank of the people, which is called coots, of course. Uh, so I look forward to the day when all of these wokists can be chased out of the country themselves until they've learned to grow up a bit and actually agree with people and do business with people that they might have a different political opinion of. That's it. That's the world of work for today. The world of work. Now, moving swiftly on, I think somebody you wouldn't describe as particularly woke is Britney Spears. Now, her highly anticipated memoir, The Woman in Me, is out today. And let's just say it's got fans screaming, give me more. Uh, in the memoir, the pop princess opens up on her conservatorship, the free Britney movement, and cheating claims during her three-year relationship with Justin Timberlake, who doesn't come out of it terribly well. Uh, and to discuss the hype surrounding this bombshell memoir, I'm joined by Hannah Hope, Rizar editor at The Sun on Sunday. Hannah, uh, welcome to The Independent Republic. Thank you very much for joining us. You've read uh, the new Britney Spears book. It sounds like it's got some pretty um, astonishing revelations in it. It really is a shocking read. Uh, cover to cover, page to page, you are getting shocking revelation after another. Even if you're not a Britney Spears fan, mm. having one of the biggest pop stars open up about their 14-year conservatorship where every decision is made for them is just something that beggars belief. I don't know if you're a fan of Britney, are you, Mike? Well, I liked <laughs> a lot of her earlier songs. I can't say that I stuck with everything that she did, but I think she's always been a fascinating figure and I think she's always been an incredibly kind of um, look-at-me... She's a proper star, is yeah. what I would say. I mean, she's a proper kind of, you know, megastar who has done some incredible things, who has obviously had some difficult times, but is kind of fascinating, I think. It's really heartbreaking, some of the revelations that come out, apart from all the celebrity asides. Mm. She talks about how she's dosed up on lithium inside a mental institute. Yeah. She's given a diet of chicken broth and vegetables to eat. So all yeah. these minor decisions are being made for her, totally taken out of her yeah. hands. She becomes addicted to Adderall. She considers taking her own life. All of her family make the decisions mm. for her. And she's being completely controlled by her father, who declared her mental uh, in a court of law in America. 
America and basically said to her, he, she actually says in the book, he said to her, I am Britney Spears now. Mm. So he really did take over her life. Yeah, right. And of course, there are some people now who say the way that we see how she has behaved over the years, quite erratically at times, particularly recently when she did that dance with the knives that we've all seen on, on social media. Some people have said to me, well, maybe she did need protection. Maybe she did need somebody to look after her because she wasn't perhaps in, uh, in complete control of everything. And maybe she was someone who needed to be looked after. But it sounds a bit more than that, doesn't it? You raise a good point. Potentially, she did need someone to take care of her. She was uh, mentally vulnerable. But should that have really been her father who was making money out of her, yeah. who put her on stage for years on end in Las Vegas, had her on the X Factor America, which is one of the biggest shows, performing like right. a monkey, essentially, while heavily dosed on uh, medication and not able to make decisions for her Herself. Mm. Um, some other revelations that come out is how she uh, had to have an abortion when she was 19 right. after getting pregnant with Justin Timberlake. She right. came from an incredibly uh, conservative Christian family mm. in the deep south of America. And she didn't want to have an abortion, but it was really kind of put upon her. Right. And she talks about the pain of going through that. And she also talks about her uh, indiscretions and cheating and, and her love life yeah. as well. Um, but it, it is it does have a happy ending in that she comes out of the conservatorship uh, and she gets married, even though that marriage is now, is now crumbled. Right. But, you know, she's now able to make decisions for herself. Yeah. And she is still getting help. She still does have her lawyer around her. She has a team of doctors and medics yeah. if she feels that she needs to talk to someone. And one of the revelations I saw this morning was that um, when they broke up, Justin Timberlake sent her a message uh, by text which consisted of two words. I was talking to Kevin O'Sullivan about it earlier. Uh, he suggested the second word might have been off. Um, I don't know if that's true or whether she uh, is any more deliberate about that, but that's pretty horrible, isn't it? It's never good to break up a relationship via someone over text. No. I, I'm a bit old-fashioned. I feel that you should always meet in person, right. if not do it over the phone. But you're right, Justin has not come out of this favourably. And also, one of his best-selling uh, solo hits, Crimea River, mm. depicted Britney in the video. And he's actually admitted on stage, I shouldn't be singing this anymore right. because he makes light of his relationship with her when clearly she was going through a right. very difficult time. Absolutely. So even now he's realising that in this woke world it's not a good time to be performing that song. No, quite. Another interesting um, aspect of it was that she talked about her appearance on Jonathan Ross's show uh, where the conservatorship was possibly going to come up and she was warned off about not talking about it, which presumably was a legal restriction that they put on her. I mean, usually with those shows, they like to keep it light, but they do like a news line. So I would imagine that legally they wouldn't have wanted to go near it, and that's mm. why it would have ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah. Uh, and certainly Jonathan Ross, I mean, he's entertaining, but he's not exactly kind of, you know, known for his, like, cutting-edge news. So I would imagine he wanted to steer clear of topics like that. But it's right, she, she, would, she did want to speak out about mm. it. She wanted to have her say, but she really was muzzled, mm. uh, which is why this book is actually really important to be reading right. now. And in the time of sort of Taylor Swift, which is, I guess, what we're in, is Britney Spears still a superstar? Is she still a big enough name? And will people buy this book? Uh, or will it just be people who are kind of of a certain age who go, yeah, I remember Britney Spears, she was great? I think it's relevant to fans of pop now and also the fans who followed her when she was younger. I think that what she's been through, like I said, a conservatorship where she's muzzled. I mean, it's a fascinating read just yeah. from a kind of human aspect and a newsworthy aspect. Mm. But she's still relevant. Her songs still do well when she does release them. They go straight to the top. And I don't think we've heard the last of her yet. And her father now is sort of out of the picture, is he? Yes, he's out the picture and I think he owes quite a lot of money. Oh dear. Well, that, that <laughs> from the money so well. he made from Britney, of right, course. Right, of course. Hannah, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Hannah Hope there uh, from The Sun on Sunday on the latest uh, sort of celebrity book fest, which is, of course, the story uh, of Britney Spears her, in her own words. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.